Hello and welcome to the Locust and Honey Podcast. We are two Reformed Southern Baptists who desire to speak the truth of the gospel to the heart of the culture. Today is episode five of the Locust and Honey Podcast. Join us as we discuss a tale of two tables. If you would like to support our growing podcast, you can do that by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and by subscribing so that you don't miss any future episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook at Locust and Honey. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men at mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Matt. I'm Andrew. <laughs> and this is the Locust and Honey Podcast. Yes. Today might be a little bit different because Andrew and I decided to start working out together early in the morning. Yes, we So did. we've been waking up in the dark, working out in the dark, and going home in the dark. And then I get my boys ready for school and help my wife get them out the door. It's been very dark. But fun. <laughs> but fun. But enjoyable uh, whenever my alarm goes off. We're getting used to get uh, time. letting coffee help us wake up. Yes. On another note, I have missed being here. Me too. My Mac crashed. I had to get a new internal hard drive. And so we are about a week and a half, two weeks, about a week and a half behind mm-hmm. on our schedule. And I'm glad that we're back. Yeah, me too. I've missed it. missed talking with you, hanging out, doing this. and But we are back and hitting the ground running. And today, we're going to be talking about A Tale of Two Tables. Today will be part one, and then next week we'll post part two of that. But before we do, Andrew, what are you into right now? Well, it's funny that you should ask. I am into Advent. 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 What is that? Well, what it is, is around the beginning of December, we start looking forward to Christmas in the same way that the Israelites looked forward to the coming of Christ. So by Christmas, you mean the birth of Christ? Yes. Oh, okay. (laughs) You don't just do like presents all month long? No. Okay. No, no. Clarify that. We look forward to the birth of Christ, and we do it in in a posture similar to the way that the old Israelites would have done that. And it's something that I didn't really know much about until probably two or three years ago. And to be honest, it's something that's been difficult to practice for me. At least it's been something that I've been really, like my heart's been after I've been wanting to do, but December is crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's just so hard to slow down and and actually focus on what we need to focus on. But, you know, with me getting married now, and, and this is really the first December where I've been married and realizing that now I'm in a position where I'm the spiritual leader of the household, it really puts a little bit more weight and emphasis on doing things like that. So it's been a focus. And we, to be honest, we haven't started yet. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) Well, I was going to ask, what are some things that you've found to to help you do that? Or what are some things you're planning on using? um, Well, I am using scripture, (laughs) but also I am using a trusty little packet that I was given a package, by you. you say yeah a package a package well a packet a that packet. could be put in a package okay but it wasn't like you, a Christmas you handed present? it to me yeah oh cool um 
but it walks through Advent. It walks through Scripture and kind of gets our hearts and minds, helps us get our hearts and minds ready for celebration of Christ's birth. I've noticed several different churches that are starting to lean more towards doing like an Advent type thing mm-hmm. during the month of December. Yeah. Yeah. We went to a church in Savannah that did that. It was really cool. Yeah. And that was the first time I really experienced it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the deal with Advent, I do it with the youth every December. We start December the 1st and we work up to, to Christmas. I made a packet when I first got here four and a half years ago. Five, well, this is the fourth year that I've been doing it. Yeah. It, what I did, it's, it's for families because I want the the fathers to be walking through kind of like what you're talking about mm-hmm. with their family. There's a daily devotion that you can do. There's a weekly theme. And a lot of it is just looking at, well, let me ask you this little trivia for you. When is the first Christmas passage found in scripture? Well, that would be Genesis chapter three. You cheater. <laughs> you knew cheater. I was going to ask that. <laughs> oh. Yeah. You're right. Okay. You're smarter than my youth. Well. <laughs> I asked them and they didn't know. Well, they told me, they took me to the Gospels when Jesus oh, so. was born. Okay. But so we, we, we talked about how the promise for a Messiah starts back in Genesis when Adam and Eve sin and God promises that from the seed of woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. And from that moment forward, God's people are longing for this Messiah to come. And last night we looked at how through the Old Testament we see all of these different things. So they've, they've got sacrifices, and they have to sacrifice. On the Year of Atonement, they do the, the yearly sacrifice. You see Adam sacrificing when he takes Isaac up on the mountain. You see all that stuff. But they're practicing for a sacrifice that's going to be an acceptable sacrifice to God. And that's not until John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And then he died as the perfect sacrifice. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, the first thing he says is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came to be sacrificed, to spill his blood for our sins so that we have an acceptable sacrifice and a way to stand before God holy Mm -hmm. and blameless. So I've just really been walking the youth through that. Uh, But that packet, that's what it does is it kind of, there was... 2,000 years or so that God's people are waiting for this Messiah to come. They're looking for him. They're anticipating it. They're wandering through the desert. They're wandering through spiritual darkness. They're wandering through all of these different nations with their cultures and their religion and all of that stuff. And they're waiting on their Messiah to come. You can just feel the angst building as you read through the Old Testament because they keep sinning. They keep falling. They keep turning their back on God. They keep worshiping idols. They keep doing all these things. And they're looking for this Messiah that's going to come, and he's going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is that. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world. And he shows up. They were looking to that moment. Christmas is more than the beginning of the story of Jesus, but it's this fulfillment of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and and then now we're in the New Testament age. We are the completion of God's promise to Abraham. We're the completion of God's promise in the Old Testament because God made a promise with Abraham. And what he said was, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Now we are longing for 
the return of Christ just as much as they were longing for the first coming of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. But he is coming back. It doesn't end with him being born and dying. He is coming back. Until then, we are the body of Christ on this earth, and we are making all things new. We are making disciples and teaching them to obey all that God has commanded Mm -hmm. of all the nations. And one thing that I think is fascinating, too, when you read the Gospels, when Jesus performs miracles and he fulfills prophecies, often what people will end up saying after that is they'll say, could this be the Christ? Right. Could this be the Messiah? Mm -hmm. The woman at the well, when she drops her bucket and she runs into town, that's what she's saying. This man told me all that all that I've ever done. Right. Could he be the Christ? So you can feel, even in the way that the Gospels are told, that the expectancy of what is going on. They're not just saying, oh my goodness, who is this guy? You right. know, They're saying, wow, he's doing things that lines up with what was prophesied before. He's doing things that no one else could do other than someone who had to be the Messiah. Yeah, which um, is why when he rode in on the donkey. Right. They were and why the Pharisees got so mad, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Uh, I think we'll end this segment on that because I think that's a, a, a good topic and a worthy topic to talk about. Uh, maybe one day we'll have to do a whole episode on Advent. Yeah, be cool. that'd be cool. But today, let's get into a tale of two tables. All right, let's do it. Take it away. All right. So, a tale of two tables. When we say a tale of two tables, what are we referring to? Yeah, so we are referring to, and and this has been brought up because we've referred to the first table of the law several times in our podcast. Last episode, we got into it a, a good little bit. I think it deserves its own episode, just looking at the preeminence of the first table and why it should be that and what happens when it's not. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about two tables— I'm going to start with the Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, and then I'm going to end in Scripture. In chapter 19, it's the chapter of the law of God. In the second paragraph, it says, The same law that was first written in the hearts of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written on two tables, the four first containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty towards man. When we talk about the two tables of the law, we're talking about the two tablets that God wrote the Ten Commandments on. He gives these two tablets to Moses. Moses comes down, sees the people worshiping the false idol, smashes them, goes back and gets two more. But on the first tablet, we see how we relate to God. And on the second tablet, we see our duty towards man. Mm -hmm. So our duty to God is the first four commandments. Our duty towards man is the second six commandments. Yeah. Going to scripture in Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, it says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord, your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus here has summed up all Ten Commandments in two points. The first one, love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And then the second, love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Jesus sets the preeminence on the first table Mm -hmm. by saying the first is the greatest, and then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Right. And so what 
the Bible is teaching us is that the importance is on getting the first four right, and then secondarily that we love our neighbor as ourselves. The way that we do that is through the second six commandment. Yeah, and two, I think it's important to understand why the Ten Commandments matter in today's world post-resurrection of Christ. I think sometimes we can bind them to the Old Testament and then say, well, that's the Old Testament, that's pre-resurrection, that's... Right. Well, and I've heard a lot of people say that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Right, yeah. And so maybe we can speak a little bit into that as well before we move on as to, well, what's the whole point of us following Ten Commandments anyway? Yeah. And why why are they still important to us today? So I'm going to go back to the 1689 Confession. Mm-hmm. Paragraph 3 says, besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial law. So the first law is God's moral law. The second type of law is ceremonial law, but that was before Christ, and that was how they worshiped God prior to Christ. So they're going through these ceremonies, and there's certain ways that they do things. There's certain things they wear. There's ways that the temple's set up, all that stuff. That's what Christ fulfilled. He fulfills the ceremonial law. So after Christ, there's no need for ceremonial law anymore. Mm. That's been fulfilled. And then the third type of law is in paragraph 4. To them he also gave sundry judicial law, which expired together with the state of that people, not obligating any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. What that's saying about the judicial law is the judicial law was for that people at that time as well, but the general equity of what the laws were saying, it still applies today. So a good example of that would be back then, everybody hung out on the top of their house to cool off, and that's where they would kind of hang out, and you had to have a fence around the top of your house so that nobody fell off. You didn't get in trouble if you didn't have the fence, but if somebody fell off and you didn't have the fence, you'd be in trouble for that. Mm -hmm. And so likewise today... If somebody has a pool in their yard, they have to have a fence around it so that a little three-year-old doesn't just come walking through into your yard and fall into the pool. You right. know? So that would be that general equity of the law. We're taking what that law was trying to accomplish and we're applying that to, to us today. But we don't say everybody needs a gate or a fence around the roof of their house anymore. Right. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But when we're looking at the Ten Commandments, that is God's moral law. That's his character. That's who he is. That's how we relate to him. That's how we relate to others. And so that applies to anything created by God for eternity. Mm-hmm. So that applies to us just as much as it applied to God's people in the Old Testament. That applies to a non-believer just as much as it applies to a believer because God's created all of us and— He's created us in his image, and that's his moral character. Right. So that's unchanging. When we look at the Ten Commandments, it's for all people. But specifically, when we look at the Ten Commandments, the first table is to be the preeminent. Mm. Because when we're focusing on rightly worshiping God, we can then love our neighbor as ourselves. But if we miss the first table, we can't do the second table well. Right. Was you saying if we're not exercising the first table of the law well, we're not going to be able to exercise the second table of the law well or at all? And right. I would say if we're not in a right relationship with God or if we're not loving him well or worshiping him as he desires to be worshiped, then we can't rightly love our neighbor as ourselves. Yeah. So in today's environment in the church, what does that look like? In the sense of us taking the second table of the law and placing it ahead of the first table of the law. Would you say that's something that we're doing today, first of all? Yeah, well, 
first, I would make a statement and I would say this is probably one of the more important things of our generation mm. is getting this right. I would say a lot of the things that we're facing culturally. So when we're recording this, December of 2021, we've had all kinds of issues go on. We've had the Black Lives Matter movement. We've had COVID. We've had all this stuff that's been going on. And this is an incredibly important issue. And it, it deals with a lot of that stuff. Because I think the majority of American churches have flipped this. We've put the preeminence on the second table of the law. We desire to love our neighbor, but we're not worshiping God properly. We're not keeping the first four commandments, but we're trying to fulfill the second mm -hmm. table, the second six. So what I mean by that is there's been all kinds of things. I would say in the last 10 to 15 years, there was a huge push for missions. Uh, but I think that that push, ultimately, if you really dig down into the minutia of it all, it was a desire to love people. We wanted to go and share the gospel with people. And what was driving us was not a proper worship of God, but it was a love for neighbor. And so there's a lot mm -hmm. of people that are wanting to go and tell people about Jesus. Even evangelism, the, the way that we do evangelism today, there's a big push to reach people with the gospel, but it's more of a love for people and a love for ourselves. We want to see our churches grow. We want to see all of that. We might not, that might not be what's stated, but we want to see these numbers mm -hmm. and we want to see more baptisms. And while we would understand that numbers represent people, what's more important is getting the first table right. Right. You know, worshiping God as he desires to be worshiped. And then out of that flows a love for others, not a love for others driving the church. Well, and I think, too, that you're going to flow from the first table into the second table, whether or not you're doing the first table right or not. And I think that if you put the second table first, what that does is it causes us to neglect the first table, which then causes us to flow into the second table in a wrong way. Well, and, where, and I would say that that's some of the issues in culture today. Yeah. So, like, if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. the issue is not that black lives don't matter. Right. The issue is that we're putting priority on a specific person, no matter who that is, mm -hmm. instead of the priority being on worshiping God as he desires to be worshiped. Right. So a Christian who has the first table right is going to say yes and amen to Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. But they're going to say all Black Lives Matter, whether that's the aborted black children whether that's the black person that's been killed by another black person, whether mm. that's whatever's going on, but that life matters because God made us all in his image. Mm -hmm. And and so all life matters in the same way that the Black Lives Matter movement, now the organization, uh, I, I can't speak to the, the whole movement, but the organization, ultimately they feel like no lives matter except what helps them push their agenda. Right. You know, so... If there's a black man that was killed by a white person of power, then that life matters. But then if there's a black man that's killed by another black man, that life doesn't matter because it doesn't help push that organization's agenda. Mm -hmm. you know. Or if there's black children that are aborted in the womb, their lives don't matter because that doesn't help push the agenda. Right. When we say that lives matter, that's different than what everybody else believes. Because without the first table, no lives matter. Mm -hmm. If Christ doesn't come and die for us, then no life matters. Right. Right? 
But because he did, all lives matter. Because mm-hmm. God created us in his image, every single life matters. And so that helps speak into that. Other things that are going on in culture, understanding the preeminence of the first table, it helps us to quit looking outwardly, and it causes us to look upward. Mm-hmm. We're looking to God. We're looking at him as holy. We're looking at ourselves as sinful, fallen creatures, and that helps us relate to one another. But if we don't do that, if we just relate to one another, we're going to try to fix problems that are actual problems. You know, if if somebody is being dealt with unfairly because of the way that they look, if somebody is being dealt with unfairly because of their skin color, because of their gender, because of their economic status, all of these different things, those are actual issues that need to be addressed because God is a God of justice, mm-hmm. right? But social justice is not biblical justice. Right. Social justice is actually unjust because what we're saying is, we want to take from those in power and we want to take their wealth and their power and all of that, strip that from them and give it to people that are not in power uh, economically and all of that. So whether we're taking their jobs, whether we're taking their income or whether we're taking their status on a, a board of trustees or whatever it is, we want to take from them and give it to people that are being oppressed. But that's it's not justice. Mm-hmm. God's word brings ultimate justice. It brings biblical justice. And so that's what we should be striving for is biblical justice. And with that, we know that there are going to be some people that have it harder than other people. If you look at Scripture, there's a lot of people that had it rough, but they're seeking after God. And we ultimately understand that this life is not the life that matters. What matters is eternity. And what I do with this life determines eternity. There's an old quote, I forget who it's from, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Mm-hmm. Like, ultimately, that's what matters. Right. If you look at Peter, he's writing to a people that are being persecuted, and they're being killed for their faith, and they're being scattered amongst the world, but they still have joy, and they have hope, and they have peace, because if Christ was persecuted, we also will be persecuted, is what Peter tells them. Mm-hmm. And, and so, to when you face various trials, count it as joy, my brethren, when you face these trials. But that's because... Peter had a a right understanding of how to worship God and how to deal with and communicate with God. Um, And that's what the first four tables of the law does. It sets this preeminence. If we look at the first four commandments, that first table of the law, there shall be no other God before me. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're worshiping God as he desires to be worshiped. We're not worshiping idols, whether those are idols in our heart or idols that we've made, or anything else. Whether that's how we've taken Scripture and made it mean what we want it to mean. God is only a God of love, and He loves everybody and accepts everybody how they are. Just come to God, and He'll accept you. That's an idol, because that's not how God defines Himself. Mm-hmm. But So we, we worship Him and Him alone. The second commandment is don't make a graven image and worship that. So we're not making images of anything because God is greater than all of those images. If you look at when the people are worshiping the bronze statue of the bull, Aaron tries to redeem that and says, let's worship God through this because he's big and strong like an ox and mm-hmm. you know all this stuff. But ultimately, that's not justifiable either because God's not limited to the strength of a bull. Right. You know, when we see these images, we relate them to God, but that's still the creation rather than the creator. And that's kind of what Romans 1 is saying when it's condemning them for worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Yeah. That's kind of what's going on here is in Romans 1, we're seeing this lack of preeminence on the first table. So you've got 
the people changed the truth for a lie. So the truth would be who God is and all that he's revealed in scripture. That would include who we are, mm-hmm. right? So first table, that's a lie, which then corrupts the second table. Right. It, it corrupts who we are and how we relate to one another and ultimately corrupts what's good. Wherefore, God also gave them up into vile attractions. Their justice has been distorted and they've been given to their lusts and they now fight for what is unjust, which is why when I started off with Isaiah 5.20, that's what's happened here in Romans. In Isaiah 5.20, it says, What are those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? What are those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight? And then verse 23, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights. So that's what's going on in Isaiah is they're calling evil good and good evil. And that's because their justice has been distorted. Uh, what's right to them has been distorted. If you look at today's culture with the LGBT movement, with social justice, with all of these different things that's going on, what is right is evil. What what they would say is evil is right. Right. And, and so what I mean by that is God's word is true. But that's not the, the popular cultural opinion. Right. The popular cultural opinion is that a woman's health is way more important than being able to murder your child. And what I mean by a woman's health is if a lady decides that she wants to abort a baby for any reason, then that should be more important than the life of the child. Mm-hmm. Or if I want to love my neighbor, then I should be mandated to get a stick in my arm. Or if I want to love my neighbor, then I proclaim whatever agenda Black Lives Matter, the organization is pushing, mm-hmm. you know, but that's not true justice. I think if the church can get right the preeminence of the first table, it will impact the culture around us. Right. Because we're bringing a new voice to the conversation. Mm-hmm. We're not just going along with social justice. We're not just going along with critical theory of any kind. We're not just going along with the abortion agenda. We're not going along with the LGBTQ plus agenda. But we're saying this is what God's word actually says. This is what true justice is. And this is what is actually right. And it's right because God's word says it's right. And this is wrong. You can't call what's wrong right and what's right wrong mm-hmm. um, because God has spoke to it and he is the final authority. It's not my opinion. It's not the church's opinion. It's God's opinion. Uh, and, and it's ultimately not his, his opinion because this is how he created us. Yeah, and I think that there are things that a lot of folks would say are just doomed, that can't be redeemed, that can't be, especially with regards to the culture. And So like what? What do you mean? Well, like a lot of people around say that things like, well, the culture is just so far gone now that there's no point in even worrying about it anymore. They're just kind of all going to hell in a handbasket and we, we can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And And really, though, I think that this, the so the preeminence of the first table, I think that the Lord would use it to ultimately redeem the culture because he is still sovereign over the culture, right? right? And he and we, the church, are have been given the charge of making all things new, of teaching all the nations to obey all that Christ has commanded. Right. So I think that one of the things that we, I guess, don't consider is the fact that this has been going on for a very long time, I, I think. Um, in the in the church and in in general, but really in the church of this idea that the second table needs to be elevated so long, in fact, 
that I think that's why, and, I, and you're just talking about it, that's why the culture has gotten to where it is. Right. But I think that we would be surprised. Well, I don't know how many of us would be. I think a lot of people would be surprised at what would happen, not just within the church, but within the culture and within the, the nation, within really just the whole world. If we actually put that in its right order, what that would do. Well, and I think if you have a healthy biblical understanding of not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament, it shows us the roadmap Mm -hmm. to that. So like the the question is, what would it look like if we got right the preeminence of the first table? What would it look like for us today? What would it look like for the church? What would it look like for the culture? Yeah, I know since I've been in the church, we're in the Southern Baptist circle, right? There's not a lot of confessional believers. There's not a lot of reformed believers. There's a lot of dispensational believers, and there's a lot of people that have been brought up understanding a whole revivalist mindset. They're byproducts of revivalism, byproducts of Finney and the Second Great Awakening, and there's a lot of people that are are longing to see a revival break out like happened in the Second Great Awakening. But I would say that that hurt the culture just as much this revivalism you mm-hmm. know where we want people to make emotional responses and walk an aisle and your salvation is based on how fervent you keep the commandments and all right. of that stuff you know that's not what we're calling for what we're calling for is a reformation which we've talked about before right but it's this restructuring and what we've got to restructure is the preeminence of the first table Mm-hmm. I think that's what needs to be reformed. And if you look in the Old Testament at how that happens, you've got God's people, and God makes a covenant with them, and they're hopping and skipping along, all things are going great, and then all of a sudden they start looking around them, and they say, man, I kind of like what they got going on over there, you know? Uh, pretty sure it was Joshua. So he's leading the people in the promised land, and you got all these people that are not supposed to be there, and God is promise that that this is the land of his people. So they're in battle and they're winning and God's blessing them. But once the idols under the guy's mat, they start losing in battle and they start losing big. And so Joshua says, okay, there's idols in the camp. We need to get them out. And, And that's what happens. They go through, they find the idols, they destroy them, they tear them down, they destroy them. And then when they continue fighting, they're granted victory again by God. Mm-hmm. Because they're they're in right relationship with him now. They've, right. they've tore down that idol. But that's what the American church needs to do. We need to tear down all the idols, whether it's the, the heart idols that we've made, whether it's the ways that we've taken and contorted Scripture to mean something else. We need to reform back to what does God's word say and worship him as he desires to be worshiped, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And say? well, I was going to say, and, and two, I think that the pushback that, well, not just with this particular issue, but with some other issues that we'll probably end up discussing later too, the pushback is, well, doesn't this incentivize or encourage a passive attitude towards missions and evangelism? You know, that's what I've heard. It's like, well, doesn't that, doesn't that just encourage us just to sit, go to church and sit in our churches and worship, but then don't do anything else? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So I would say absolutely not. If you look at the first missionaries to be sent out by the church, it was Calvin 
you know, he's sending Mm -hmm. out missionaries. But what it does is once we're in right relationship with God, we desire to truly love our neighbor as ourself. If our hearts are sinful, what we desire is our greatness over everybody else. Think of Darwin, you Mm -hmm. know, the survival of the fittest. If God did not create us in his image, that's what we've got. You've got a bunch of Darwinist people running around and we want to do better than the next person because that ensures our survival over theirs. So like if you look at Black Lives Matter as an organization, that's what it wants to do is see them succeed over anything else. If you look at critical theory, that's what it's pushing. Uh, If you look at social justice, that's what it's pushing. If you look at the LGBT movement, that's what they're pushing. Mm. If you look at the pro-abortion movement, that's what they're pushing. They're all pushing our survival over anything else that stands in our way. Right. That's not justice. That's not love for neighbor. Right. That's love for self. Yeah. And that stems from sin. It stems from a heart that worships ourself. If we're worshiping God, then we can love our neighbor because we're not competing with them. We're worshiping God and doing what he's called us to do, and we love them because he first loved us. Mm-hmm. He created them. He loves them. Therefore, he's loving them through us. Right. But if we don't have the first table right, we can't properly love our neighbor. Mm -hmm. We're going to covet. We're going to steal. We're going to desire to murder. We're going to desire to all of these things that the second table covers. All of those are going to be lust. All of that stuff. We're going to do all of that because we want what our neighbor has. Right. Because Mm -hmm. we're not satisfied in God. If we're satisfied in God, then we can love our neighbor properly. Yeah, And so that drives proper missions. Like what I was talking about with missions is there's been a, a big push for missions. And, and I had, I, my degree was in mission. I went to, to school for four years for missions and I went on 14 or 15 different mission trips around the world, you know, but the, the big push in that movement ultimately was not driven out of a reverence of who God is. It was driven out of a love for neighbor. And, and, while we should love our neighbor, what I'm saying is that shouldn't be the driving factor. The driving factor should be out of our love for God. Mm-hmm. Because we love him, we love those that he also created. Because we love him, I'm going to obey what he says when he tells me to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all I've commanded. Mm-hmm. My heart for evangelism is directly connected to my relationship with the Father. And my relationship with the Father is directly connected to the first four commandments. Right. So if I've got that right, I have a proper foundation for evangelism. But if I've got that wrong, I'm evangelizing people to a false gospel, not to the biblical gospel. Right. Where where Christ is exalted and it's God-centered and not man-centered. Right. And and that that was kind of something, too, that I was going to mention Uh, And maybe this might be something that we talk about in the next episode, but like evangelism, period. One of the things that I noticed, I did a lot of evangelism in college as well. I, I think that what happens, and I think that this, what we're talking about leads to it, but what I think what happens is we actually present the gospel in a way that in some cases might actually be the opposite of loving our neighbor. Because what we do is we put forth the law of God and we tell people they need to repent, and then we mark them down as a number, and then we let them go. Mm-hmm. 
We don't teach them to obey. We don't teach them the goodness of God's law and and the sweetness of following Christ and right. living a life submitted to him. We say, okay, you need to repent of your sins so you can go to heaven. Well, you know, and then yeah. and then it's like that's and, it. But that's a byproduct down, of you know that's a byproduct of Finney. Yeah. And the whole revivalist movement. Yeah. You know. Finney said if you put me in a room with a hundred people and you leave me there long enough, I can convince all a hundred people that they need to get saved. Yeah. And, and so we have a lot of evangelism that is convincing people that they need to get saved, but not actually discipling them. Mm. We can't separate discipleship from evangelism. Right. They're two sides of the same coin. If I'm going to go and make disciples, I'm going to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey all I've commanded. Right. The way of making disciples is evangelizing people, but then also teaching them to obey all that God's commanded. Mm-hmm. We don't just want people to join our church and get baptized, and then we don't see or hear from them again. We want to reach people with the gospel and then teach them to obey all that he's commanded. Right. And that is proper missions. That's proper evangelism. But that all stems from a proper worshiping the creator rather than the creation. Right. You're not going to get there if we are not worshiping the Lord the way he wants to be worshiped because uh, yeah. our flesh, I think, ultimately leads us to that point. Right. It invades our... our and and we're, we're not saying is that the second table of the law is... It's still God's law. It's still important, right? We're saying what we Jesus have, said, and the second is right, like it. Right. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two is all of the law and prophets. Right, and I think that a lot of people, when they do, you know, when we talk about evangelism and missions and things like that, they do come out of good intentions. But if we're not, if we're not worshiping the Lord the way that He desires to be worshipped, then our flesh is going to hijack that. Right. You know. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. And without beating a dead horse. That's why we're having this conversation is because we've gotten it wrong. We've elevated the second table of the law, the love for neighbor, above the first table of the law, how we relate to God and worship God. Mm -hmm. And what we need is not a revival and revivalism, but what we need is to reform our understanding of the first table of the law and how it should be preeminent. And if we make it preeminent, it will transform our hearts so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. We get rid of these fleshly desires to put ourselves first, and we can actually love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Right. And that's going to transform the culture. It's going to transform our churches. It's going to transform our hearts mm-hmm. because our culture is full of a lot of people that are fighting for a love of neighbor, quote unquote but they're doing it wrongly. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it's not loving to the neighbor at all. Right. And that's what we want to see, is we want to see biblical justice. We want to see true justice. We want to see true love of neighbor. We want to see true missions. We want to see true evangelism. We want to see all that stuff happen. It's important. But if it's not coming from the right motives, it's not going to be helpful. and It's mm-hmm. not going to be successful. That's why I brought up Romans 1, because you've got these people that have changed the truth for a lie, wherefore God gave them up to vile attractions and their justice has been distorted and they've been given to the lust of their flesh. So I I think that what we're seeing is two things. It's God judging us for getting to this point, the church being silent as the culture drifts into madness. Mm -hmm. You know, America as a nation is being judged and that's 
a good thing because God is just. Right. He's holy. He's just. And we deserve to be judged. We've sinned against God. But for the church moving forward, we've got to tear down our idols. We've got to completely destroy them. And then we've got to start worshiping God as he desires to be worshiped. Right. Um, we've got to start upholding the first four commandments. And so I think that's kind of a good stopping point for today. Yeah. Next week, we'll look at the first four commandments, what they are, and and how the church can uphold those commandments. And then we'll look at the second table of the law, too, and, and what those look like for the church. Yeah, that sounds good to me. All right. Well, if you're still here, uh, we appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for being here. Have a good Lord's Day, and we will see you next week. That we will.